do with two microphones up here, but uh, I guess uh, if this one runs out, we'll use this one. Good morning. Um, I've titled this morning's message, and what a wonderful worship time. Wow. And I was thinking about this title as we was worshiping, What God Loves. He loves what we just did. He loves us getting lost in worship, getting lost in his presence. He loves for us to abandon ourselves and give him what's the deepest part of our love and our worship. And boy, I I believe we had a setting this morning where that took place, what God loves. This is a special time of the year. Um, Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And that does lead us into the week of the Lord's Passion, Good Friday, and, um, and then Resurrection Sunday. I know we say Easter, but it's Resurrection Celebration, and uh, we're excited about that. You know, we see the results of what Jesus did every day in our lives. And I'm going to share a few things about what God loves, what he loves, maybe loves more than most I think worship in this other that God loves pretty equal. But we're going to be sharing from John chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Uh, John is such a unique gospel. Um, talked about washing the, the, the disciples' feet. If you think about it, chapters 13 through 17 is all about the upper room. The longest section of what happened that night covers what he talked about and what he shared with them and his closing prayer in chapter 17 and it's kind of like John comes along late and he does not pattern his writing like Matthew, Mark and Luke he writes about things and, and I, I just believe this was the way the Holy Spirit was using him to give us things that the other three do not give us some of the things that he writes later on in chapter 18 and 19, some of the other Gospels mention it. But I'm going to take you to chapter 2 because something happens in chapter 2 where we're told that the first miraculous sign, the first sign of his omnipotent power that he had to do miracles was in chapter 2 and it was a wedding of all places in Canaan of Galilee, which was pretty close to his hometown, Nazareth. So probably he knew all of the people there, and uh, all of a sudden he was put on the spot about rescuing that they ran out of wine, and he turned water into wine. And in verse 11 it says, What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs. This is John was there, and he's saying, This is the first thing we watched him do that was a miraculous sign through which he revealed his glory, and he confesses this. The disciples got another level of faith when they saw that. Well, it would, it would turn my faith up a little bit, wouldn't it, yours? I just think it's interesting that he confessed that, and his disciples believed in him. Come on. <laughs> they might have been believing to follow him, but it's kind of like something else happened after that sign, after that miracle, and following the miracle John records the Lord attending Passover in Jerusalem. Think about this. He records both the Palm Sunday in chapter 12, and he records a different entrance in the first part of Jesus' ministry. This is not Palm Sunday that we're about to read. This is his very first Passover after he launched his ministry. 
And I'm going to pick this up in, in verse 13 when it says that when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Wish I could say it probably like he did it. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, the zeal for your house will consume me. Let's focus on this just for a moment. We see a side to Jesus here that you don't see anywhere else. The only other place you see this is in chapter 12. And John doesn't record it, but the other disciples, that last week when he came in on the donkey and palms and accolades, he does the same thing. He clears the temple, the first Passover in his ministry, and two years later he's having to do the same thing all over again. This is not the same, he's not describing the same scene. It's two different scenes. And Luke 19 records about that the zeal of his house had consumed him. This zeal came from a word meaning boiling water. You don't see Jesus kind of like go off on people, but you see him doing that here. He really resented what was going on in the temple courtyard. So what was, what was he really focusing on? Was he focusing on the merchandising of this celebration that should have been focused on God, or was there something else going on here? He definitely was opposed to the way they commercialized this holy time. And he disrupted what was going on, and, and it says that he took a whip and he ran them all off. He went over and started turning tables up, scattering the coins. I would just love to have seen that, wouldn't you? I think probably everybody was just like, what, what's going on here? Even his disciples probably was like, wow, what, what caused that? And, he, and then it says, they remembered that he had this zeal for the house of the Lord that came from Psalm 69, believe it is. And so every Jewish family was to celebrate Passover. It was no exception. It was one of those things that was to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt. Every Jewish family was supposed to buy the sacrifices. And because they needed those animals, they merchandised the temple. They were setting up shops on the temple grounds, selling things and really overcharging people. This is why he, he went after the people who were money changers because they had un... They had a, um, their scales were not right. They were dishonest, and they were robbing people, plus doves. Why did he focus on doves? He said, get these doves out of here. Because the doves were sold to the rather poor of the people that could not afford a lamb or, or a heifer or a steer or any of those animals that they would use. He knew that the poor were being taken advantage of, and he di directed his greatest points to those who are taking advantage of the poor. And when you see what happens afterwards, you see these Jewish leaders coming and says, um, what miraculous sign can you give us that proves your authority to do all this? 
Can I t give you this in our lingo? Who do you think you are coming into our place of authority and doing what you just did? I think they were probably a little bit surprised. And then he gives them this sign. Are you there? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Well, they missed the whole point of what he was saying. They, this, it took 46 years for this building to be built, this temple to be built. And you're going to raise it up in three days? And, it, and, the, and John gives explanation. Oh, he was really talking about his death and resurrection that they realized after that happened, that's what he was pointing to. So what does God love about this? God's house, the temple, the temple mound itself. It's not the original temple. This is not the temple that Solomon built among. It's the most beautiful temple of all the temples that were there. But Jesus declared that this is God's house. This is his temple. It belongs to God. It's a holy place, and it's supposed to be a place of prayer place of prayer I don't think it was just the animals that provoked this it was what this temple was supposed to represent it was supposed to re represent a, a contact with the Lord a fellowship with the Lord in Matthew 21 13 he says my house shall be called a house of prayer and the temple was considered holy separated unto God for the purpose of people having communion with him is that one place where worshipers came at three times a year, three festivals. If they could make it to Jerusalem, they came there and they honored God. And the Passover is one of their greatest celebrations. How God delivered them from Egypt. You think about that first temple, the celebration, the number of sacrifices is beyond comprehension. They went to such degree, Solomon's went to such degrees to celebrate the dedication of that temple the pomp and circumstance and everything was over the top and Solomon prayed and I don't know if I can say this uh, without challenge I think what he prayed is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible and I'm going to take you to 2nd Chronicles chapter 6 there's no way I wanted to put this on the screen I would drove those guys up in the sound room crazy if I tried to do that. But if you have your Bible, if you have a phone, I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. How long has it been since I asked you to turn to something? <laughs> we just put it on the screen so we don't have to bring our Bibles, I guess. But I want to take you through this. Now, what does God love? What God loves he loves you taking time to talk to him. He loves you talking to him. Sometimes it's kind of formalized prayer, like praying over our meals and praying for the service and praying after the service. And, and yet he loves for us to just spend time with him in communion with him and this temple was supposed to be a reminder of that, that God loves for his people to be in touch with him, praying, listening. I want you to listen to this. The glory of God filled the temple after this prayer, but we're going to pick this up 
in verse 14. This is all a prayer. And I want you to see when Solomon is praying how much prayer in itself is in his prayer. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. We kind of did some singing about that, didn't we? That he alone is worthy. There's no one like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. By the way, if you see the verses right before this, he had a platform and this king and all the the pomp and circumstance he gets on his knees and he raises his hand in humility and in this vast beautiful building that they're dedicating this temple he gets on his knees and he raises his hand and he's praying this on his knees with his hands raised now Lord God of Israel keep your servant David my father the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons are careful in all that they do to walk before me according to my law as you have done. Now, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer of your servant in praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications, another word for prayers, of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear forgive have mercy on us Lord when a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple then hear from heaven and act judge between your servants repaying the guilty by bringing down on his own head what he has done declare the innocent not guilty and so establish his innocence and then he talks about humiliation. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your people Israel, bring them back to the land you gave to them and their fathers. On a day where it was so special, he's already looking forward, he says, when we get off track, Lord, Remember when we turn back to you and we repent and we turn from our ways back to your ways. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive. Forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live. Send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine, when we have crisis, do we have crisis in our land today? We have crisis on every side. What do we do about that? I'm just saying God loves for us 
to turn to him God loves for us to turn to him maybe better than turning to Facebook and voicing our displeasure with the world maybe we'll get more out of that moment by turning our face toward God and say in a crisis moment that we're in right here oh God have mercy on us have mercy on our world have mercy on our nation have mercy on our state our city on our churches have mercy oh God when we find ourselves in a crisis and this is what he's talking about in verse 28 when famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew locusts grasshoppers when enemies besiege them in any of their cities whatever disease and disaster may come and when a prayer or plead is made by any of your people Israel each one aware of his afflictions and pain and spreading out his hands toward this temple then hear from heaven your dwelling place forgive and deal with each man according to all he does since you know his heart for you alone know the hearts of men so that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land you gave them and then he branches out he's more inclusive here it's not just the people of Israel he's talking about other people who are living in the land that are not Jews He's not wanting Jewish people only to know him. He's praying that those who are outside of Judaism will know him, will know the true God. Shouldn't we keep that in mind when we are aware that we can do, you know, internal sharing and encouragement, but this needs to go outside the walls. What he's talking about is about those that are around us. When the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth, is, there's this outreach beyond the temple. That all the people may know your name and fear you as you do your own people Israel. We still got a little bit to go, right? And may know that this house may be, that bears that you built bears your name. And when your people go to war against their enemies, and whenever you send them, when they pray to you toward this city, you have chosen in the temple. I really believe that Jesus was looking back on the dedication of that first temple and he was in a different temple, but he said this ought to have the same kind of holiness of, of God upon it that that first temple had. It wasn't a different temple. He said, this is my father's house. You've taken my father's house and you've desecrated it to some kind of merchandising of the, of the kingdom of God. And he calls them out on it. When your people go to war against their enemies, whenever you send them, when they pray to you toward this city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plead and uphold their cause. And when sin, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, amen, right? We are all flawed. So appealing to the mercy of God is, should be a part of our daily life. 
There's no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart, if they repent, if they have a change of heart in the land where they have been held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken and pray toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and toward this temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas, uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. When Jesus was saying this is supposed to be a house of prayer, he was meaning that there should be a lot of praying going on, not a lot of buying and selling. You will never see him this angry anywhere else in the Gospels than here and on Palm Sunday when he does the exact same thing except he rides in on a donkey that day. Two years prior, he clears the temple, and boy, they just get right back to their old business. What does God love? What God love? I don't believe we really understand how much he enjoys our spending time with him. Don't we think of it mostly that we're the beneficiary? We're the one that are, we're, we're blessed. God does something in our lives. He speaks to us. He reveals himself. But I just think this exchange is something that he loves. He loves for us to shut down the busyness of our life. We are the most busy people. But this is the most busy generation. And we have the least amount of time for some reason. When we should have all the conveniences, all the things that we have. It was in Sunday school, and I was telling the people around our table, I'm in a generation that we remember when air conditioning showed up at our house. It was wonderful. We stayed in the living room as long as we could. And then we were told to go to your bedrooms, windows open, hope there's a breeze. Now we have cars that will drive for you. That's a dangerous thing, but maybe it's not a dangerous thing the way that some people drive. The car might ought to be on their own. We have things in the seats to warm. We, we have all these luxuries, and it seems like we have less time to seek the face of God. And we're so, our attention span is so small. Even for children today, they say their attention span has become microscopic compared to what it used to be because they got so many things going on and they're switching in their attention and and I think he's really dealing with this what does God love he loves for us to spend time with him not to just be perfunctory and say Lord I, I need to pray over the needs and these people that I know that's hurt and they're recovering they're in the hospital and they're they have all this going on, and there's a death in the family, and we kind of go through the list. And I believe sometimes when we pray, it's kind of like what David Wilkerson experienced, that, that when we get up to leave, I think if we would just hear him saying, don't leave, I'm enjoying you spending time with me. We don't think that way, do we? 
And that's exactly what happened to David Wilkerson. He preached the message called Feeding Jesus. And he would spend time in his office at Times Square Church praying, seeking God. Just, And he gets up to leave and he hears Jesus say to him as he walked toward the door to open the door to go out to do what he's supposed to do in ministry. And, and he hears Jesus say, don't leave yet. I'm enjoying this. He turns around and he has probably one of the most overwhelming communion with the Lord that he could ever experience, knowing that he thought that he was the one that was getting something out of that meeting. And he realized that Jesus was enjoying him, spending time. It's almost as though we pray as though we're interrupting God. That he's busy doing something and we're like, Lord, I got this need and and if you've got time, listen to me. And no, he loves for us to talk to him. He finishes his prayer like this way. Now, my God, may your eyes be open, attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant powerful prayer isn't it does God show any response to this prayer by Solomon taking up so much time to say we mess up we mess up here help us we repent come help us we're taking off to foreign lands hear us come help us and he goes through all these litanies of things that could go wrong, go haywire. And Lord, we repent, we pray toward this place. And would you hear us and rescue us, bring us back, restore us. And, he, and all of these prayers, all of these situations that he's putting before God. What if these things happen and we mess up? Would you be merciful to us? What a way God answered that prayer. This is how it reads. Solomon finished praying. <laughs> we might not want this to happen in our prayer time. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, the sacrifices, the glory of God, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good and His love endures forever. You know, I really believe God's response was telling them, telling Solomon, that's a pretty good prayer, son. Watch this. And I don't, I don't believe it's just... You know, in my mind, I don't believe Solomon, when he finished that prayer, <laughs> expected to have the display of the glory of God. But it was just God showing that he honored that man's prayer. He saw a man at that point in his life that knew that Israel did not rest on him. Israel's future rested strictly on the Lord. And he knew that they would be wayward. There would be things that they would swing back and forth from faith 
to sin and God was going to have to work redemptively in their lives. But I, I just want, as the praise team comes, I want more than anything to impress this upon you. God loves you meeting with him. He loves you. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to save us. But sometimes I think we we wane in our understanding of when you talk to him, he loves that. When you spend time with him, I want to challenge you this morning to intentionally think about Lord, how can how can I how can I mend my prayer habit to carve out more time just to sit with you? Help me to turn everything that's a distraction off if possible. Phone, TV, whatever. Help me to get to a point to where this becomes one of the most important things I do every day is I need you. I need to know you. I, what I know of you now is not all that I need. I need to know you more. I need you to talk to me. I need you to reveal yourself to me. There's pockets in my life that I need your truth to come in and rearrange how my priorities are. child, your firstborn, it's hard to describe that. It's just hard to describe that. I, I, was, I was lost for words when I looked through that window at Lancho General Hospital and looking at Jason, even though he had a big old forced mark over his eye, I was like, I can die now, I can go to heaven, I've seen a miracle. time and the 
compass of our energy and make that dial turn to you instead of other directions. Help us, Lord, to be laser focused on you. Help us give people in this room wisdom how to cut out the distractions in their lives, the busyness that we find ourselves in. To sit with you.
us out. Uh, walk, if you're not right next to someone, go and stand next to them. Take their hand. And uh, I want you to pray for each other. And just give it a, a thought. Lord, if there's something, just speak to